Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Welcome, AP Scholars, to the Time Machine Talk Show. This week we're going to talk about industrializ- industrialization. I can't say that word. <laughs> and today I have one of Mr. Stotberg's wonderful AP Scholars with me. Uh, his name is Jared, and he's going to be helping us with the reading and the questions. So welcome, Jared. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> All right. So here we go. We're on page 828 where it says explaining the Industrial Revolution. And what we're looking for is in what ways did the Industrial Revolution mark a sharp break with the past? And in what ways did it continue earlier patterns? So here we go. The global context for this epochal economic transformation lies in a very substantial increase in human numbers from about 375 million people in 1400 to about 1 billion in the early 19th century. Accompanying this growth in population was an emerging energy crisis, most pronounced in Western Europe, China, and Japan as wood and charcoal. The major industrial fuels became scarcer and their prices rose. In short, global energy demands began to push against the existing local and regional ecological limits. In broad terms, the Industrial Revolution marks a human response to that dilemma, as non-renewable fossil fuels such as coal, oil, and natural gas replace the earlier reliance on the endlessly renewable energy sources of wind, water, wood, and the muscle power of people and animals. It was a breakthrough of unprecedented proportions that made available for human use, at least temporarily, immensely greater quantities of energy. It also wrought, of course, a mounting impact on the environment. The massive extraction of non-renewable raw materials to feed and to fuel industrial machinery, coal, iron ore, petroleum, and much more, altered the landscape in many places. uh, Sewers and industrial waste emptied into rivers, turning them into poisonous cesspools, In 1858, the Thames River running through London smelled so bad that the British House of Commons had to suspend its session. Smoke from oil fired, or sorry, smoke from coal fired industries and domestic use polluted the air in urban areas and sharply increased the incidence of respiratory illness. Against these conditions, a number of individuals and small groups raised their voices. Romantic poets such as William Blake and William Wadesworth invade against the dark satanic mills of industrial England and nostalgically urged a return to the green and pleasant land of an earlier time. Here were early and local signs of what became, by the late 20th century, an issue of unprecedented and global proportions. For many historians, the Industrial Revolution marked a new era in both human history and the history of the planet that scientists increasingly call the Anthropocene, or the Age of Man. Increasingly, human industrial activity left a mark not only on human society, but also on the ecological, atmospheric, and geological history of the Earth. More immediately and more obviously, however, access to huge new sources of energy gave rise to an enormously increased output of goods and services. In Britain, where the Industrial Revolution began, industrial output increased some 50-fold between 1750 and 1900. 
It was a wholly unprecedented and previously unimaginable jump in the capacity of human societies to produce wealth. Lying behind it was a great acceleration in the rate of technological innovation. Not simply this or that invention, the spinning jenny, power loom, steam engine, or cotton gin, but a culture of innovation, a widespread, almost obsessive belief that things could be easily improved. Um. Okay, so our question was how it breaks with the past. Previously, they worked in their homes to make things, and now we're going to switch over to factories. So you're going to want to put down something about how this is a switch from cottage industry, which would be working in their homes, to use the use of factories and the drive of non-renewable fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and natural gas. Those are all super important during this time. So this is really good context for the imperialism, which we're going to talk about this week, which is when the European countries went to go try to find resources because they don't have enough in their country. All right, Jared, take it away on page 830. Early signs of technological creation, creativity that spawned the Industrial Revolution appeared in the 18th century Britain, where a, variation, where a variety of innovations transformed cotton textile production. It was only in the 19th century, though, that Europeans in general, and the British in particular, more clearly forged ahead of the rest of the world. The great breakthrough was the coal-fired steam engine, which provided an animate and almost limitless source of power beyond that of wind, water, or muscle, and could be used to drive any number of machines as well as locomotives and ocean-going ships. Soon, the Industrial Revolution spread beyond the textile industry, industry to iron and steel production, railroads and steamships, food processing and construction. Later in the 19th century, a so-called Second Industrial Revolution focused on chemicals, electricity, precision machinery, the telegraph and the telephone, rubber, printing, and much more. Agriculture, agriculture too, was affected as mechanical reapers, chemical fertilizers, Pesticides and refrigeration transformed this most ancient of the industries. Technical innovation occurred in most modest of ways as well. Patents, patents for horseshoes in the United States, for example, grew from fewer than five per year before 1840 to 30 to 40 per year by the end of the century. Furthermore, industry industrialization soon spread beyond Britain to cont continental Western Europe and then, in the second half of the century, to the United States, Russia, and Japan. In the 20th century, and the Industrial Revolution became a global as a number of Africa, Asia, Africa, and Latin American countries developed substantial industrial sectors. Oil, natural gas, and nuclear reactions joined coal as widely available sources of energy. And new industries emerged in automobiles, airplanes, consumer durable goods, electronics, computers, and, and on and on. It was a cumulative process that, despite periodic ups and downs, accelerated over time. More than anything else, this continuous emergence of new techniques of production, together with massive economic growth, they made a possible and the environmental impact they generate. Mark passed the 250 years as a distinct phase of human history. Okay, so uh, I just realized that this question came from the couple paragraphs that were before what we read. 
So I'm just going to help you out here with the answer so we don't have to go back. Basically, you've got written already that it increased production and then it changed from um, cottage industry to factories. So you need to also put down that it forms new classes of people in society and new work patterns. So previously, when it was cottage industry, you could just kind of work whenever you needed to work and you made your own products and things were just available within where you lived. But now you're going to be on the factory time clock. So shifts would become a thing, you know, like where you go in and like work in the morning and then, you know, work into the evening. Then for the next part where it says, how did older patterns persist? You're gonna put down that patriarchy continued. So it's still a very male-led society and there's still a lot of social inequality. All right, so we're currently on page 830 with the Y Europe section, and your next question is, in what respects did the roots of the Industrial Revolution lie within Europe, and in what ways did that transformation have global roots? The Industrial Revolution has long been a source of great controversy among scholars. Why did it occur first in Europe? Within Europe, why did it occur earliest in Great Britain? And why did it take place in the late 18th and 19th centuries? Some explanations have sought the answer in unique and deeply rooted features of European society, history, and culture. One recent account, for example, argued that Europeans have been distinguished for several thousand years by a restless, creative, and freedom-loving culture, with its roots in the aristocratic, warlike societies of early Indo-European invaders. While not denying certain distinctive qualities of the West, many world historians have challenged views that seem to suggest that Europe alone was destined to lead the way to modern economic life. Such an approach, they argue, is not only Eurocentric and deterministic, but also flies in the face of a much recent research. Eurocentric is a word you may see on the AP test. It basically just means that Europe is like the center of everything. And since they were the writers of history, that's kind of how history has been formed up until hmm, maybe like 20 years ago. Now it's starting to get a little bit more diverse in talking about other places. All right, so let's go on. Historians now know that other areas of the world had experienced times of great technological and scientific flourishing. Between 750 and 1100 CE, the Islamic world generated major advances in shipbuilding, the use of tides and falling water to generate power, papermaking, textile production, chemical technologies, water mills, clocks, and much more. India had long been the world center of cotton textile production, the first place to turn sugarcane juice into crystallized sugar, and the source of many agricultural innovations and mathematical inventions. To the Arabs of the 9th century CE, India was the place of marvels. More than either of these, China was clearly the world leader in technological innovation between 700 and 1400 CE, prompting various scholars to suggest that China was on the edge of an industrial revolution by 1200 or so. For reasons much debated among uh, historians, all of these flowers of technological creativity had slowed down considerably or stagnated by the early modern era, when the pace of technological change in Europe began to pick up. But their early achievements certainly suggest that Europe was not alone in its capacity for technological innovation. Nor did Europe enjoy any overall economic advantages as late as 1750. 
Over the past several decades, historians have carefully examined the economic conditions of various Eurasian societies in the 18th century and found a world surprising resemblances. Economic indicators such as life expectancy, patterns of consumption and nutrition, wage levels, general living standards, widespread free markets, and prosperous merchant communities suggest broadly similar conditions across the major civilizations of Europe and Asia. Thus, Europe had no obvious economic lead, even on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Rather, according to one leading scholar, there existed something of a global economic parity between the most advanced regions and the world economy. A final reason for doubting a unique European capacity for industrial developments and de development lies in the re relatively rapid spread of industrial techniques to many parts of the world over the past 250 years, a fairly short time by world history standards. Although the process has been highly uneven, industrialization has not has taken root to one degree or another in Japan, China, India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, South Korea, and elsewhere. Such a pattern weakens any suggestion that European culture or society was exceptionally compatible with industrial development. Thus, while sharp debates continue, Many contemporary historians are inclined to see the Industrial Revolution erupting rather quickly and quite unexpectedly between 1750 and 1850. Two in intersecting factors help to uh, explain why this process occurred in European, Europe rather than elsewhere. One lies in certain patterns of Europe's uh, internal development that factor innovation. It's many small and highly uncompetitive place states taking shape in the 12th or 13th century, arguably provided an insurance against economy and technological stag stagnation. With the large Chinese, Ottoman, and Mughal mm -hmm. empires perhaps lacked. If so, then Western Europe's fail, failure to recreate the entire unity of the Roman Empire may have acted as a stimulus to an innovation. All right, so that answers a little bit of our question, where it says, um, in what respects did the roots of the Industrial Revolution lie within Europe? You can put down that because Europe had several highly competitive states, smaller states, they would compete against each other, versus when they had larger empires, such as Chinese, Ottoman, or Mughal empires, they didn't have that competition. So you can put that down. Another thing that you might want to add is that earlier, before Europe had their industrialization, there was also some innovations in India, Arab, and China, uh, and that's on the top of page 831, if you want to write down some examples for possible evidence for an essay. Furthermore, the relative newness of the European states and their monarchs, desperate, desperate need for revenue, and the absence of an effective tax-collecting bureaucracy bureaucracy, pushed European royals into unusual alliance with their merchant classes. Small groups of merchant capitalists might be granted special privileges, monopolies, or even tax-collecting responsibilities in exchange for much-needed loans or payments to the state. It was therefore in the interest of governments to actively encourage com commerce and innovation. Thus, states granted charters and monopolies to private trading com companies, and governments founded scientific societies and offered prizes to promote innovation. 
In this way, European merchants and other innovators from the 15th century onward gained an unusual degree of, for, of freedom from state control and in some places a higher social status than their counterparts and in more established civilizations. In Venice and Holland, merchants actually controlled the state. By the 18th century, major Western European societies were highly commercialized and governed. By the states, <laughs> by the states generally supportive of private commerce. In short, they were they were well on their way toward capitalist economies, where buying and selling on the market was a widely established practice before they experienced industrialization. Such internally competitive economies, coupled with a highly competitive system, was of rivals. Rival states are arguably fostered innovation in the new civilization taking shape in Western Europe. Okay, so to finish um, answering that question, you need to put something down about the need for revenue. And so they started this tax bureaucracy where they were collecting taxes. And this pushed the European royals into an alliance with the merchant classes which is going to result in a degree of freedom from state control and higher social status for the merchants. So basically the merchants had to team up with the government because the government wants to be paid back for the loans that it's given the merchants and the government in exchange will spur on innovations and commerce because they want their money back. Europe's societies of course were not alone in developing market-based economies by the 18th century. Japan, India, and especially China were likewise highly commercialized or market-driven. However, in the several countries after 1500, West, Western uh, Europe was unique in another way. The region alone found itself in, at the hub of the largest and most varied network of exchange in history. Widespread contact with cult culturally different peoples was yet another factor that historically was generated extensive change and innovation. This new global network, largely the creation of Europeans, themselves greatly energized com commerce and brought Europeans into direct contact with peoples around the world. For example, Asia, home to the world's richest and most sophisticated societies, was the initial destination for European voyages of exploration. The German philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz uh, encouraged Jusayet missionaries in China not to worry so much about getting things Europeans and the Chinese but rather about getting remarkable Chinese inventions to us. Inexpensive and well-made Indian textiles began to flood into Europe causing one English observer to note almost everything that used to be made of wool or silk related either to dress of the woman or the furniture of our houses was simply by supplied by the Indian trade. The competitive stimulus of this Indian cotton textiles was certainly one of the one factor driving innovation in the British textile industry. Likewise, the popularity of Chinese porcelain and Jap Japan Japani Jap Japanese lequer prompted imitation and innovation in Je England, France, and Holland. Thus, competi comp competition from desirable, high quality, and newly available Asian goods played a role in stimulating European. Europe's industrial revolution. Okay, 
So our next part of the question was, in what ways did the transformation have global roots? This is one example of that. You can put down that Europe becomes this area of, uh, of kind of a global network. So somewhat of a hub for you know, all of these different global exchanges that are going on. And also make a note of this word, Jesuit. It is in the second paragraph and it is a religion. They send out Jesuit missionaries uh, into China and other parts of Asia. That's important. You saw that on one of your DBQs. I think it was the last one we did. There was a document written by Jesuit. So just know that that's a religion. And then you can also put down that uh, Chinese porcelain, uh, Japanese lacquerware. Those are things that the Europeans want. Also wool and silk. So much like earlier when they had the Silk Road, now they're still trading these things because they need it for the textile industry. And you can also put down that um, cotton textiles come from India. All right, so going on to the next paragraph, it talks about the Americas, and it says, in the Americas, Europeans found a windfall of silver that allowed them to operate in Asian markets. They also found timber, fish, maize, which would be corn, potatoes, and much else to sustain a growing population. Later, slave-produced cotton supplied an emerging textile industry with its key raw material at low prices, while sugar, similarly produced with slave labor, furnished cheap calories to European workers. Europe's Industrial Revolution, concluded historian Peter Stearns, stemmed in great part from Europe's ability to draw disproportionately on world resources. The new societies of the Americas further offered a growing market for European machine-produced goods and generated substantial profits for European merchants and entrepreneurs. None of the other empires of the early modern era enriched their imperial heartlands so greatly or provided such a spur to technological and economic growth. So definitely put down that in America, they were able to get new resources such as silver and new foods. And you could put down that uh, the raw materials coming from America are going to be what will fuel the machines of Europe. Eventually, America will start getting more industry and factories as well so that they don't have to depend on Europe for these goods. But in the very beginning, they're definitely dependent on Europe. Thus, the intersection of new, highly commercialized, competitive European societies with the novel global network of their own making provides a context for understanding Europe's industrial revolution. Commerce and cross-cultural exchange acting in tandem sustained the impressive technological changes of the first industrial societies. Okay, question number three. What was distinctive about Britain that may help to explain its status as the breakthrough point of the Industrial Revolution? So here we go on page 834, why Britain? If the Industrial Revolution was initially a Western European phenomenon, generally it clearly began in Britain in particular. The world's first Industrial Revolution unfolded spon spontaneously in a country that concentrated some of the more general features of European society. It was both unplanned and unexpected. With substantial imperial possessions in the Caribbean, in North America, and by the late 18th century in India as well, Britain was the most highly commercialized of Europe's larger countries. Its landlords had long ago enclosed much agricultural land, pushing out the small farmers and producing for the market, 
a series of agricultural innovations, crop rotation, selective breeding of animals, lighter plows, higher yielding seeds, increased agricultural output, kept food prices low, and freed up labor from the countryside. Do you remember what the Pushing the Small Farmers Out movement was called? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I kind of put Jared on the spot there. It was called the enclosure movement. Remember that? We talked about it very briefly. Mm. But that basically like pushes farmers into the cities, which is going to um, start the need for jobs and kind of spur on the Industrial Revolution. All right, so let's keep going. The guilds, which earlier had protected Britain's urban artisans, had largely disappeared by the 18th century, allowing employers to run their manufacturing enterprises as they saw fit. Coupled with a rapidly growing population, these processes ensured a ready supply of industrial workers who had few alternatives available to them. Furthermore, British aristocrats, unlike their counterparts in Europe, had long been interested in the world of business and some took part in new mining and manufacturing enterprises. British commerce, moreover, extended around the world, its large merchant fleet protected by the Royal Navy. The wealth of empire and global commerce, however, were not themselves sufficient for spawning the Industrial Revolution. For Spain, the earliest beneficiary of American wealth was one of the slowest industrializing European countries into the 20th century. British political life encouraged commercialization and economic innovation. Its policy of religious toleration, formally established in 1688, welcomed people with technical skills regardless of their faith, whereas France's persecution of its Protestant minority had chased out some of its most skilled workers. The British government favored men of business with tariffs that kept out of cheap Indian textiles, with laws that made it easier for easy to form companies and to for, forbid workers, unions with roads and canals, canals that helped, a create, helped create a unified internal market, and with patent laws that served to protect the interests of inventors, checks on loyal author, authority, trialed by jury and the gr- growing authority of parliament, for example, provide a free arena for private enterprise that elsewhere in Europe. Uh, Europe's scientific revolution also took a distinctive form in Great Britain in ways that fostered technological innovation. Whereas science on the continent was largely based on logic, deduction, and mathematical reasoning, in Britain it was much more concerned with observation, experiments, precise measurements, and mechanical devices and practical commercial applications. Discoveries that atmospheric pressure and vacuums, for example, played an important role in the invention of uh, and improve, Im- improvement of the steam engine. Even though most inventors were artisans or craftsmen rather than scientists, in 18th century Britain, they were in the mo- in the close contract with scientists, make- scientists, makers of scientists, scientific instruments, and entre- entrepreneurs. Whereas in the continental Europe, these groups were largely separate. The British Royal Society, an association of natural philosophers, established in 1660, saw its role as of as one of promoting useful knowledge. To this end, its established mechanics, libraries, published broad broadsheets and pamphlets on the recent scientific advances, and held frequent public lectures and demonstrations. The integration of science and technology became widespread and per- permanent after 1850. But for a century before, it was a large, largely a British phenomenon. Several 
Finally, several accents of geog- geography and uh, history contri- contributed something to Brit- Britain's industrial revolution. The country had ready supply of coal and iron ore, often located close to each other and within easy reach of major industrial centers. Although Britain took part of, in the wars against Napoleon, the country's I- island uh, location protected it from kind of invasions that so many continental European states experienced during the era of the French Revolution. Moreover, Britain's relatively fluid society allowed the adjustments in the face of social changes without widespread revolution. By the time the dust settled, with the immense disturbance of the French Revolution, Britain was well on its way to becoming the world's first industrial society. Okay, so our question is, what is distinctive about Britain that may help to explain its status as the breakthrough point of the Industrial Revolution? So, uh, first of all, we need to write down that it's highly commercialized and rapid growing population provides a supply of industrial workers. That happens mostly because of the enclosure movement. Remember, that's when all of the larger farms are kind of taking over the smaller farms, and so it pushes the smaller farmers to go into the cities. So you might want to put that down in your question so that you remember that part. That would be a little bit of context for the Industrial Revolution. I know you all love context. All right, then you can also put down that um, British aristocrats, unlike their counterparts in Europe, had long been interested in commerce, so uh, they extend that throughout the world using the Royal Navy. Okay, you can also put down that Britain's policies favored businesses, such as not allowing worker unions at first and providing investment for infrastructure. They also possessed a ready supply of coal and iron, and their location protected them from invasions of continental Europe. All of these factors weigh in on why it was possible for Britain to be the first industrial revolution. Okay, our next question is, how did Britain's middle classes change during the 19th century? And we're going to skip ahead a little bit to page 837. That's where it starts talking about the changes of classes and how the Industrial Revolution is going to transform British society. So starting on page 837 under the middle class, it says, Those who benefited most conspicuously from industrialization were members of the amorphous group known as the middle class. At its upper levels, this middle class contained extremely wealthy factory and mine owners, bankers, and merchants. Such rising businessmen readily assimilated into aristocratic life, buying country houses, obtaining seats in Parliament, sending their sons to Oxford or Cambridge University, and gratefully accepting titles of nobility from Queen Victoria. Far more numerous were the smaller businessmen, doctors, lawyers, engineers, teachers, journalists, scientists, and other professionals required in any industrial society. Such people set the tone for the distinctly middle-class society which, with its own values and outlooks. Politically, they were liberals, favoring constitutional government, private property, free trade, and social reform within limits. Their agitation resulted in the Reform Bill of 1832, which broadened the right to vote to many men of the middle class but not to middle-class women. Ideas of thrift and hard work, a rigid morality and cleanliness, characterized middle-class culture. The central value of that culture was respectability, a term that combined notions of social status and virtuous behavior. 
Nowhere were these values more effectively displayed than in the Scotsman Samuel Smiles' famous book of self-help. Published in 1859, individuals are responsible for their own destiny, Smiles argued. An hour a day devoted to self-improvement would make an ignorant man wise in a few years. According to Smiles, this enterprising spirit was what distinguished the prosperous middle class from Britain's poor. The misery of the poorer classes was voluntary and self-imposed, the results of idleness, thriftlessness, impotence, and misconduct. Women in such middle-class families were increasingly cast as homemakers, wives, and mothers, changed with creating an emotional haven for their men and refuge for a heartless and cutthroat capitalist world. They were also expected to be the moral centers of family life, the educators of respectability, and the managers of household consumption as shopping, a new concept in the 18th century Britain, became a central activity for the middle class, an ideology of domesticity <laughs> defined homemaking, child rearing, charitable endeavors, and refined activities such as embroidery, music, and drawing as the proper sphere for women, while paid employment and public sphere of life outside the home beckoned to men. Male elites in many civilizations had long established their status by detaching women from productive labor. The new wealth of the Industrial Revolution now allowed larger numbers of families to aspire the kind, to that kind of status. With her husband as provider, such as woman as now a lady, she must now work for a profit, wrote the Englishman Margareta Gregg in 1853, or engaged in any, any occupation that money can command. Employing that, employing even one servant become a proud marker, ma marker of such middle class status. But with the withdrawal of middle class women from the labor force turned out to be only temporary phenomenon. By the late 19th century, some middle class women began to enter the teaching, clerical, and nursing professions. And in the second half of the 20th century, educated middle class women flooded in the labor force. By contrast, the withdrawal of children from productive labor into schools have proved a more, a more enduring phenomenon as industri industrial econo 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 <laughs> economies, economies <laughs> yeah, increasingly go. required a more educated workforce. As Britain's industrial eco economy <laughs> matured, it also gave a rise to a sizable lower middle class which include people employed in the growing service such sector as clerks, salespeople, bank, tellers, hotel staff, secretaries, telephone operators, police officers, and the like. By the end of the 19th century, the growing segment of the middle class represented about 20% of, Brit of Britain's population and provided new employment opportunities for women as well as men. In just 20 years, the number of female secretaries in Britain rose from 7,000 to 90,000. Almost all were single and expected to return to the home after marriage. Telephone operators had initially been boys or men, but by the time of the 19th century, in both Britain and the United States, that work had become a wholly female occupation. For both men and women, such employment uh, represented a claim on membership in the large middle class and a means of distinguishing themselves clearly from a working class tainted by manual labor. Okay, so we got a lot to write down here about the middle class and how it changes. Uh, the first thing that you can put down is that they are politically liberal, which means that they are going to 
favor a constitutional government and a protection of private property. You can also put down that women are homemakers in the middle class and that uh, they are the moral center of the family. You can put down that shopping becomes the central activity of their day and uh, defines their role in the home. That uh, you can also put down that the middle class consists of salespeople, bank tellers, secretaries, police officers, and basically just any job that does not require manual labor. All right, so we're going to continue with the laboring class, and our next question, question number five, is how did the Industrial Revolution transform British society? So keep that in mind as we're looking at this information. We're on page 839. It says the overwhelming majority of Britain's 19th century population, some 70% or more, were neither aristocrats nor members of the middle class. They were manual workers in the mines, ports, factories, construction sites, workshops, and farms of an industrializing Britain. Although their conditions varied considerably and changed over time, it was the laboring class who suffered most and benefited least from the epic transformations of the Industrial Revolution. Their efforts to accommodate, resist, protest, and change those conditions contributed much to texture of the first industrial society. The lives of the laboring classes were shaped primarily by the new working conditions of the industrial era. Chief among those conditions was rapid urbanization. Liverpool's population alone grew from 77,000 to 400,000 in the first half of the 19th century. By 1851, a majority of Britain's population lived in towns and cities, an enormous change from the overwhelming rural life of almost all previous civilizations. By the end of the century, London was the world's largest city with more than 6 million inhabitants. So there's one change that you can put down. It was rapid urbanization. And that um, Britain's population, by 1851, the majority of Britain's population now lived in towns and cities versus being rural. These cities were vastly overcrowded and smoky with wholly inadequate sanitation, periodic epidemics, endless row houses and warehouses, few public services or open spaces, and inadequate and often polluted water supplies. This was the environment in which most urban workers lived in the first half of the 19th century. By 1850, the average life expectancy in England was only 39.5 years, less than it had been some three centuries earlier. Nor was there much personal contact between the rich and the poor of the industrial cities. Benjamin Disraeli, novel Sybil, published in 1845, described these two ends of social spectrum as two nations between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings, as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets. So you can put down that it's very dirty and overcrowded and polluted in the cities and that the upper and middle classes rarely saw the laboring classes or rarely uh, became connected with the laboring classes. They were very separate from each other. Okay, the industrial factories to which growing numbers of desperate people looked for employment offered a work environment far different from the artisan shops or the tenant farms. Long hours, low wages, and child labor were nothing new for the poor, but the routine and monotony of work 
dictated by the factory whistle and the needs of machines, impose novel and highly unwelcome conditions of labor. Also objectable was the direct and constant supervision and the rules and fines aimed at enforcing work discipline. The ups and downs of a capitalist economy made industrial work insecure as well as onerous. In the early decades of the 19th century, Britain's industrialists favored girls and young unmarried women as employees in the textile mills, for they were often willing to accept lower wages, while male owners believed them to be both docile and more suitable for repetitive tasks such as tending machines. A gendered hierarchy of labor emerged in these factories, with men in supervisory and more skilled positions, while women occupied the less skilled and lighter jobs that offered little opportunity for advancement. Nor were women welcome in the unions that eventually offered men some ability to shape the conditions under which they labored. So you can put down that the gender equality was definitely not there, that most women worked for lower wages, and they were supervised by men. They didn't have rights such as being involved in the unions the way that the men will eventually have rights to do. Thus, unlike their middle-class counterparts, many girls and young women of the laboring classes engaged in industrial work or found jobs as domestic servants for upper and middle-class families to supplement meager family incomes. But after marriage, they too usually left outside paid employment because a man who could not support his wife was widely considered a failure. Within the home, however, many working-class women continued to earn money by taking in boarders, doing laundry or sewing clothes in addition to the domestic child-rearing responsibilities long assigned to women. So you can put down that uh, most factory workers were young unmarried women and that once they become married they would do more jobs of the home and take in work such as sewing. So the biggest thing that you also need to remember is AP uh, curriculum requires you to know that there were new social classes that arise because of the result of the Industrial Revolution. And the rapid urbanization is one of those big changes within the social classes. So make sure and put that down in your notes. All right, so the next uh, section is about social protest. And we don't have any questions directly about that, but I think it's important that we look at this, uh, so because it's talking about Karl Marx and capitalism and communism things. So our next reader is from Miss Garza's class, and we'd like to welcome Kalichi to our podcast. Go ahead, Kalichi, and start on page 842. Okay. For workers of the laboring classes, industrial life was a stony desert which they had to make habitable by their own efforts. Such efforts took many forms. By 1815, about one million workers, mostly artisans, had created a variety of friendly societies. With dues contributed by members, these working classes, self-help groups provided insurance against sickness, a decent funeral, and an opportunity for social life in an otherwise bleak environment. Other skilled artisans who had been displayed by machine-producing goods and forbidden to organize legal unions, sometimes wrecked the offending machinery and burned mills that had taken their jobs. The class, consciously of working people, such as, <laughs> was such that one police informer reported that most every creature of the lower order, both in towns, countries, are on their side. 
Others acted within the political arena by joining movements aimed by obtaining the vote for working classmen, a goal that was gradually achieved by the second half of the 19th century. When trade unions were legalized in 1824, growing numbers of factory workers joined these associations in their efforts to achieve better wages and working conditions. Initially, their strikes attempted at nationwide organizations and threat of violence made them fearful, indeed, to the upper class. One British newspaper in 1834 described unions as the most dangerous in situations that were ever permitted to take root under the shelter of law in any country. Although they, although they later became rather more respectable organizations, socialist ideas of various kinds gradually spread within working classes, class, challenging the assumption of a capitalist society. Robert Owen, seven, 1771 through 1858, a wealthy British, British cotton textile manufacturer urged the creation of small industrialization communities where workers and their families would be well treated. He established one such community with 10-hour workday, spacious housing, de decent wages, and education for children in his mills in New Lanark in Scotland. One more lasting significance was the socialism of Karl Marx. 1818 through 1883. German by birth, Marx spent much of his life in England where he witnessed the brutal conditions of Britain's Industrial Revolution and wrote volumously about his history and economics. His probing analysis led him to the conclusion that industrial capitalization, capitalism was inherently unable system doomed to the collapse in the revolutionary uh, upheaval that would give birth to classless society, thus ending forever in an ancient conflict between rich and poor. In his writings, the combined impact of Europe's industrial, political, and scientific revolutions found expression. Industrialization created both the social conditions against which Marx protested so bitterly and the enormous wealth that felt or that he felt would make socialism possible. The French Revolution, still a living memory in Marx's youth, provided evidence that grand upheavals giving rise to new societies had in fact taken place and could do so again. Moreover, Marx regarded himself as a scientist, discovering the laws of social development in which the same fashion as Newton discovered the laws of motion. He was therefore a scientific socialist. Embedded in these laws of historical change, revolution was a certainty and the socialist future inevitable. So one thing that you should put down is that eventually unions will form. That happens in 1824. And this is important because it gives workers more rights and more ability to fight against what they think is unfair or unjust. It was a grand, compelling, prophetic, utopian vision of human freedom and community and it inspired socialist movements of workers and intellectuals amid the grim harshness of Europe's industrialization in the second half of the 19th century. Socialists established political parties in most European states and linked them together in international organizations as well. These parties recruited members, contested elections as they gained the right to vote, agitated for reforms, and in some cases, 
plotted revolution. In the later decades of the 19th century, such ideas echoed among more radical trade unionists and some middle-class intellectuals in Britain, and even more so in the rapidly industrializing Germany and elsewhere. By then, however, the British working class movement was not overtly revolutionary. When a working class political party, the Labour Party, was established in the 1890s, it advocated a reformist program and a peaceful democratic transition to socialism, largely rejecting the class struggle and revolutionary emphasis of classical Marxism. Generally known as social democracy, this approach to socialism was especially prominent in Germany during the late 19th century and spread more widely in the 20th century when it came into conflict with the more violent and revolutionary movements calling themselves communist. Improving material conditions during the second half of the 19th century helped to move the working class movement in Britain, Germany, and elsewhere away from revolutionary posture. Marx had expected industrial capitalist societies to polarize into small wealthy class and huge increasingly impoverished proletariat. However, standing between the captains of industry and the workers was a sizable middle and low, lower middle class, constituting per, perhaps 30% of the population, most of which were not really wealthy, but were immensely proud that they were not manual laborers. Marx had not foreseen the development of this intermediate social group, nor had he imagined that workers could better their standard of living within a capitalist framework, but they did. Wages rose under pressure from unions, cheap imported food, improved working class diets, infant mortality rates fell, and shops and chain stores catering to the working class families multiplied. As English male workers gradually obtained the right to vote, politicians had an incentive to legislate in their favor by abolishing child slavery, regulating fa uh, factory conditions, and even in 1911, inaugurating a system of relief for the unemployed. Sanitary reform considerably cleaned up the filth and stink of early 19th century cities, and urban parks made a modest appearance. Contrary to Marx's expectations, capitalist societies demonstrated some capacity for reform. Okay, so the gist of Karl Marx that you need to understand is that he saw the Industrial Revolution as a class struggle between the oppressor, which would be the owners of the industrial capital, and the oppressed, which he called the proletariat. That's spelled P-R-O-L-E-T-A-R-I-A-T. And that's another name for the industrial working class. So for Marx, the Industrial Revolution was great promise as a phase in this human history because it made humankind more productive. But he thought that capitalist societies could never eliminate poverty because of the private property competition and the class hostility that was in these societies. And so he predicted that capitalism would eventually collapse because of a working class revolution. And then after the revolution, Marx looked forward to a communist future where everyone would kind of be equal and everybody would make the same wages. <clears throat> but what happened was reform instead of collapse. So that's what that reading is basically talking about there. Okay, so we're going on to question number seven. And question number seven is, what were the differences between industrialization in the U.S. and that in Russia? And that's on page 847. So I'm letting you skip a little bit here. You can go back and read it later. But we're going to go on with this question. It says, American industrialization began in the textile factories of New England during the 1820s, but, great expo but grew explosively 
in the half century following the Civil War. The country's huge size, the ready availability of natural resources, its expanding domestic market, and its relative political stability combined to make the United States the world's leading industrial power by 1914. At that time, it produced 36% of the world's manufactured goods, compared to 16% of Germany, 14% of Great Britain, and 6% of France. Furthermore, U.S. industrialization was closely linked to that of Europe. About one-third of the capital investment that financed its remarkable growth came from British, French, German capitalists. But unlike Latin America, which also received much foreign investment, the United States was able to use those funds that generated an independent industrial revolution of its own. As in other second-wave industrializing countries, the U.S. government played an important role, though less directly than in Germany or Japan. Tax breaks, huge grants of public land to the railroad companies, laws enabling the easy formation of corporations, and the absence of much overt regulation of industry all fostered the rise of very large business enterprises. The U.S. Steel Corporation, for example, by 1901 had an annual budget three times the size of the federal government. In this respect, the United States followed the pattern of Germany, but differed from that of France and Britain, where family businesses still predominated. The United States also pioneered techniques of mass production using interchangeable parts, the assembly line and scientific management to produce for a mass market. Interchangeable parts are important because that basically means that prior to interchangeable parts, if you made something and a part broke, then you had to make the whole thing all over again. But now that you have interchangeable parts, you just have to replace that one part that broke. So that's the difference there. The nation's advertising agencies, Sears, Robox, and Montgomery Wards, mail order catalogs, and urban department stores generated a middle class culture of consumption. When the industrialist Henry Ford in the early 20th century began producing the Model T at a price that many ordinary people could afford, he famously declared, I am going to democratize the automobile. More so than in Europe, with its aristocratic traditions, self-made American industrialists of the fabulous wealth such as Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller became cultural heroes, widely admired as models of what anyone could achieve with daring and hard work in a land of endless opportunity. Nevertheless, well before the first Model T rolled off the assembly line, serious social divisions of the common to European industrial societies mounted. Pre-industrial America had boasted for, of a relative social equality, quite unlike that of Europe. But by the end of the 19th century, a widening gap separated the class classes in Carnegie's Homestead Steel Plant near Pittsburgh. Employees work every day except Christmas and the 4th of July, often for 12 hours a day. In Manhattan, where millions of Europeans immigrants disembarked, many lived in for four or six-story buildings, with four families and two toilets on each floor. In every large city, such as conditions prevailed close by the mansions of elite neighborhoods. To some, the contrast was a betrayal of American ideals, while others saw it as a natural outcome of com compet competition and the survival of the fittest. As well, such conditions generate much labor protest. The formation of unions and strikes sometimes lead it leading to violence. In 1877, when the Eastern Railroads announced a 10% wage cut for the workers, Strico disrupted rail service across the eastern half of the century, smashed equipment, and rioted. 
both state militias and federal troops were called out to put down the movement. Class con consciousness and class conflict were conflict were intense of the industrial American of the late 19th and tw early 20th centuries. Unlike many European cities countries, mm -hmm. uh, however, no major political party emerged in the United States to repeat the represent the interests of the working class, nor did the ideas of socialism, and especially Marxism, appeal appeal to American workers nearly as much as the as they did to the European laborers. At its highest point, the Socialist Party of America garnered just six percent of the vote for its presidential candidate in the nineteen twelve election. Whereas socialists at the time held more seats in Germany's parliament than any other party. Even in the depths of the Great Depression of the 1930s, no major socialist movement emerged to champion American workers. How might we explain this distinctive figure of American industrial development? One answer lies in the relative con uh, conservatism of major American union organizations, especially the American Federation of Labor. It focused on skilled workers, excluded the more radical unskilled laborers, and its refusal to align with any party limited its influence in the political arena. Furthermore, massive immigration from Europe beginning in the 1840s created a very diverse industrial labor force on top of the country's sharp racial divide. This diversity contrasted sharply with the more homogeneous populations of many European countries. Catholics and Protestants, whites and blacks, English, Irish, German, Slavs, Jews, and Italians, such differences undermine the class solidarity of American workers, making it far more difficult to sustain class-oriented political parties and a social socialist labor movement. Moreover, the country's remarkable economic growth generated an average, a higher standard of living for American workers than their European counterparts experienced. Land was cheaper and home ownership was more available. Workers with property property generally found socialism less attractive than those without. By 1910, a particularly large group of white-collar workers in sales, services, and offices outnumbered factory laborers. Their middle-class aspirations further diluted impulses toward radicalism. So in America, socialism didn't really take hold because of all of these factors that they just said here in this paragraph. The diversity in America, the um, higher standard of living, and the fact that land was cheaper than it was in Europe. So that's important, and we can compare that to Russia as soon as we read about Russia. Uh, going on, but political challenges to the abuses of capitalist industrialization did arise. In the 1890s, among small farmers in the U.S. South, West, and Midwest populist railed against banks, industrialist monopolies, the existing money system, and both major political parties, all of which they thought were dominated by the corporate interest of the Eastern elites. More successful, especially in the early 20th century, were the progressives, who pushed for specific reforms such as wages and our legislation, better sanitation standards, antitrust laws, and greater governmental intervention in the economy. Socialism, however, came to be defined as fundamentally un-American. In a country that so valued individualism and so feared big government, it was a distinctive feature of the American response to industrialization. All right, now we're going to read this section about Russia. And Kalichi, take it away. 
As a setting for the Industrial Revolution, it will be hard to imagine more different environments than the United States and Russia. If the United States was the Western world's most exuberant democracy during the 19th century, Russia remained the sole outpost of absolutely monarchy. It was in which the state exercised for greater control individuals and society than anywhere else in the Western world. At the beginning of the 20th century, Russia still had no national parliament, no legal political parties, and no nationwide elect elections. The star uh, answerability to the god alone ruled unchecked. Furthermore, Russia's society was dominated by the titled nobility of various ranks. Its upper levels included great landowners who furnished the states with military officers and leading government officials. Until 1861, most Russians were peasant serfs bound to the estates of their master, subject to sell, greatly exploited, and large, largely at the mercy of their, own, of their owners. A vast cultural goal separated the two classes. Many nobles were highly westernized, some speaking French better than Russian, Russians. Whether, whereas their serfs were steeped back in backwoods, Orthodox Christian Christianity that incorporated pre-Christian spirits, spells, curses, and magic. A farther difference between Russia and the United States lay in the source of social and economic changes. In the United States, such as bubbled bubbled up from society as free farmers, worker, workers, businessmen sought new opportunities and new uh, operated in political systems that gave them varying degree of expression. In an autocratic Russia, change was farther more often initiated by the state itself. In its con continuing efforts to catch up with the more powerful and innovative states in Europe, this kind of transformation from above found an early expression in the region of Peter the Great. Such state-directed change continued in the 19th century with freeing of serfs in 1861, an action stimulated by the military defeat at the hands of British and French forces in the Crimean War. To many thought to many thoughtful Russians, serfdom seemed incomparable with modern civilization and held back with the country's overall development, as, as did its economics and industrial backwardness. Thus, being in the 1860s, Russia began a program of industrial development, which was more heavily directed by the states than was the case in Western Europe or the United States. By the 1890s, Russia's Industrial Revolution was launched and growing rapidly. It focused particularly on railroads and heavy industry and was fueled by substantial amount of foreign investment. By 1900, Russia ranked fourth in the world in steel production and had major industries in coal, textiles, and oil. Its industrial uh, enterprises, still modest in comparison to those of Europe, were concentrated in a few major cities. Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Kiev, for example, and took place in factories far larger than the most Western Europe. All of this contributed to the explosive social outcomes of Russians' industrialization. A growing middle class of businessmen and professionals increasingly took shape as modern and educated people, many in the middle class, objected strongly to the deep conversation of Tsarist Russia and sought a greater role in political life. 
but they were also dependent on the state for contracts and jobs and for suppressing the growing radicalism of workers, which they greatly feared. Although factory workers constituted only about 5% of Russians' total population, they quickly developed a radical class consciousness based on harsh conditions and the absence of any legal outlet for their grievances. As in Western Europe, millions flocked to the new centers of industrial development. By 1897, over 70% of the population in Moscow and St. Petersburg were recent migrants from the rural areas. Their conditions of life resembled those of industrial migrants in New York or Berlin. One observer wrote that people live in impossible conditions, filth, stench, suffocating heat. They lie down together barely a feet apart. There is no division between the sexes and adults sleep with children. Until 1897, a 13-hour workday was common. While ruthless discipline and overt disrespect for supervisors created resentment in the absence of legal unions or political parties, these grievances often erupted in the form of large-scale strikes. In these conditions, a small but growing number of educated Russians found in Marxist socialism a way of understanding the changes they witnessed daily, as well as hope for the future in a revolutionary upheaval of workers. In 1898, they created an illegal Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and quickly became involved in workers' education, union organizing, and eventually revolutionary action. By the early 20th century, the strains of rapid change and the state's continued intransience and reached the bursting point. And in 1905, following its defeat in a naval war with Japan, Russia erupted in spontaneous insurrection. Workers in Moscow and St. Petersburg went on strike and created their own representative councils called Soviets. Peasant uprisings, student demonstrations, revolts of non-Russian nationalities, and mutinies in the military all contributed to the upheaval. Recently formed political parties representing intellectuals of various persuasions came out into the open. In 1905, revolution. Though brutally suppressed, forced the Tsar's regime to make more substantial reforms than it had ever contemplated. It granted a constitution, legalized both trade unions and political parties, and permitted the election of a national assembly called the Duma. Censorship was eased and plans were underway for universal primary education. Industrial development likewise continued at a rapid rate, so that by 1914, Russia stood fifth in the world in terms of overall output. But in the first half of that year, some uh, 1,250,000 workers were representing about 40% of the entire industrial workforce, went, on, uh, went out on strike. Thus, the Tsar's limited political reforms, which had been granted with great reluctance and were often reversed in practice, failed to tame working-class radicalism or to bring social stability to Russia. In Russian political life, the people generally and even the middle class had only a very limited voice. Representatives of even the privileged class had become so alienated by the government's intransience that many felt revolution was inevitable. Various revolutionary groups, many of them socialists, published pamphlets and newspapers, organized trade unions, and spread their message among workers and peasants. Particularly in the cities, these revolutionary parties had an impact. They provided a language through which workers could express their grievances. They created links among workers from different factories, and they furnished leaders who were able to act when the revolutionary movement arrived. World War I provided the moment. The enormous hardships of that war, coupled with the immense social tensions of industrialization within a still uh, autocratic political system, sparked the Russian Revolution of 1917. 
That massive upheaval quickly brought to power the most radical of the socialist groups operating in the country, the Bolsheviks, led by the charismatic Vladimir Ivanich Yulinov, uh, better known as Lenin. That's much easier to say. Only in Russia was industrialization associated with violent social revolution. This was the most distinctive feature of Russia's modern historical development, and only in Russia was a socialist political party inspired by the teachings of Karl Marx able to seize power, thus launching the modern world's first socialist society with enormous implications for the 20th century. All right, so the question you have is comparing industrialization in the United States to Russia. So, first thing that you want to put down is the United States was a democracy, whereas Russia still had absolute monarchy in the form of the Tsar. Tsar is spelled T-S-A-R. Another difference is that in the United States, people were free, such as free farmers, workers, businessmen, so their society was different. Whereas in Russia, serfdom persisted for a while uh, where people weren't as free, and then serfdom was taken away. So that was another difference. Also in the United States, um, working class consciousness among laborers did not develop as quickly. So they weren't quite as politically. They didn't, they didn't have their own political party, and they weren't supporters of socialism. It just didn't appeal to them because... They had unions that were focused on helping them have their rights. However, in Russia, they didn't have that. And it produced a violent social revolution that was um, inspired by the teachings of Karl Marx. Okay, one last question. Question number eight. In what ways and with what impact was Latin America linked to the global economy of 19th century? We're going to start on page 853 under the heading After Independence in Latin America. Take it away, Jared. The struggle for independence in Latin America had lasted for longer and proved far more destructive than in North America. Decimated of populations, diminished herds of livestock, flooded or closed silver mines, abandoned farms, shrinking international trade and investment uh, capital, and empty national treasuries. These were among the conditions where the Latin American countries greeted independence. Furthermore, the four major administrative units of Spanish American America utilized ultimately dissolved into 18 separate countries, and regional revolts wracked Brazil in the early decades of its independent life. A number of international wars in the most independent, independent century likewise shook these new nations. Peru and Bolivia briefly united and then broke apart in bitter conflict. Mexico lost hugely territories to the United States. And an alliance of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay went to war with Paraguay in a conflict that, that devastated Paraguay's small population. Within, within these new countries, political life was turbulent and unstable. Conservatives followed centralized authority and sought to maintain the social status quo of the colonial era in alliance with the Catholic Church which at the independence owned perhaps half of all productive land. Their often bitter opponents were liberals, who attacked the church in the name of Enlightenment values, sought at least modest social reforms, and prevailed federalism. In many countries, conflict between these factions, often violent, enabled factory strongmen known as caudillos to achieve power as defenders of order and property, although they too were succeeded in one another with great frequency. 
One of them, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana de Mexico, was president of his country at least nine separate times between 1833 and 1855. Constitutions, too, replaced one another with bewildered, bewildering speed. Bolivia had ten constitutions during the 19th century, while Ecuador and Peru each had eight. Social life had not changed fundamentally in the aftermath uh, of independence as in Europe and North America. Women remained disfranchised and wholly uh, outside of formal political life. Slavery, it is true, was abolished in most of Latin America by mid-century, although it was persisted in both Brazil and Cuba. Until the late 1880s, most of the uh, legal distinctions among various uh, racial categories were disappearing and all free people were considering at least official equal citizens. Nevertheless, productive economic resources such as businesses, businesses, ranches, and plantations remained overwhelmingly in their hands of Creole, while white men were uh, culturally oriented toward Europe. The military provided an avenue of mobility for a few skilled and ambitious mestizo men, some who subsequently became caudillos. Uh, other mixed-race men and women found a place in small middle classes, teachers, shopkeepers, or artisans. The vast majority, blacks, Indians, and many mixed-race people of both sexes, remained un- impoverished, working small subsistence, small farms, or laboring in the mines, or on the haciendas of the well-to-do, only rarely did the poor and dispossessed actively rebel against their social betters. One such as was the Caste of War Yucatan, a prolonged uh, struggle of the Maya people of Mexico aimed at cleansing their land of European and Mestizo intruders. Okay, going on where it says, facing the world of econ- or facing world economy. During the second half of the 19th century, a measure of political cons- consolidation uh, took hold in Latin America, and countries such as Mexico, Peru, and Argentina Argentina entered periods of great stability. At the same time, Latin America as a whole became more closely integrated into a world economy, driven by the industrialization of Western Europe and North America. The new technology of the steamship cut the sailing time between Britain and Argentina almost in half while the underwater telegraph instantly brought the latest news and fashions of Europe to Latin America. The most significant economic outcome of this growing integration was a rapid growth of Latin American exports to the industrializing countries, which now needed the food products, raw materials, and markets of these new nations. Latin American landowners, businessmen, and governments proved eager to supply those needs, and in the 60 years or so after 1850, an export boom increased the value of Latin American goods sold abroad by a factor of 10. Mexico continued to produce large amounts of silver, supplying more than half of the world's new supply until 1860. Now added to the list of raw materials flowing out of Native America or Latin America were copper from Chile, a metal that the growing electrical industry required, tin from Bolivia, which met the mounting demand for tin cans, and nitrates from Chile and Gano, bird droppings from Peru, both of which were used for fertilizer. 
Wild rubber from the Amazon rainforest was in great demand for bicycle and automobile tires, as was sisal from Mexico used to make binder twine for the proliferating mechanical harvesters of North America. Bananas from Central America, beef from Argentina, cocoa from Ecuador, coffee from Brazil and Guatemala, and sugar from Cuba also found eager markets in the rapidly growing and increasingly prosperous world of industrializing countries. In return for these primary products, Latin America imported the textiles, machinery, tools, weapons, and luxury goods of Europe and the United States. Accompanying this burgeoning commerce was a large-scale investment of European capital in Latin America, $10 billion alone between 1870 and 1919. Most of this capital came from Great Britain, which invested more in Argentina in the late 19th century. Then in the colony of India, although France, Germany, Italy, and the United States also contributed to this substantial financial transfer. By 1910, U.S. business investments or interests controlled 40% of Mexican property and produced half of its oil. Much of this capital was used to build railroads largely to funnel Latin American exports to the coast where they were shipped overseas markets. Mexico had only nine, uh, 390 miles of railroad in 1876. It had 15,000 miles in 1910. By 1915, Argentina, with 22,000 miles of railroad, had more track per person than the United States. So our question was how uh, or what was the impact that Native or that Latin America was linked to the global economy? So you need to put down that they ex exported food products and raw materials to industrializing nations, and they imported textiles, machinery, tools, and weapons from Europe and the United States. Europeans and Americans invested in Latin America. They also bought the raw materials and helped build railroads. And you could say that there was an upper class uh, landowners that benefit mostly from this trade. The middle class starts to grow as well, but the vast majority are still going to live in rural areas. And that is it for today for industrialization. Thank you for listening. Sorry, this one's kind of long, but you can pause it and always come back to it later. There was quite a bit of reading with this one. So uh, thank you to our guest readers today. They were awesome. Have a good one.